started now. So welcome to the next study on the on, this is we're doing eternal rewards, and I'm moving a little bit off the rewards. Um, but uh, this is number ten, message number ten. We're looking on the first resurrection. So we've already talked a little bit about the first resurrection in one of the early studies, but I want to go back and 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 uh, because I think it is so important. I really want you to understand the scriptures around it, because this is a, an area, and I'll do one other topic, which there's major disagreements in the body of Christ around it. And so it helps if you do some search of the scriptures yourself. I've given quite a bit of information in the notes, but there's quite a few things I haven't put in yet. So I want to start off, well, let's just start off in our introduction. We just start off with uh, just the review again. In Matthew 16, 27, uh, Jesus states, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each one according to his works. So we are very clear in this scripture and in many other scriptures, uh, it tells us very clearly of reward for our activities. Now, it's not just any kind of works. It's works that come out of a life that's yielded to the Lord and wanting to honor him and please him. So there's a dimension of faith to it. So our status before God is totally based on faith, not works. By faith you're saved through grace. By grace you say through faith, not of works, lest anyone would boast. Ephesians 2. So we know that our standing is totally related to what Jesus did, but now our reward and our position and status for eternity is very much determined by how we respond to God's call on our life. And our, each of us have got a calling, and that calling is individual, it's also corporate, and that calling involves us becoming into full sons, full maturity, and, and the issue of intimacy with God, with personal growth and transformation, and with fulfilling our assignment. So now I want to look at two, we, we talked about the rewards and we put them into <clears throat> three categories, eternal, uh, e um, eternal um, intimacy, and many of the rewards uh, describe a deep intimate connection with Jesus. We looked at the area of eternal authority, of having responsibility to govern with him and bring total order to creation, and then eternal glory. And in that, we looked at resurrection and our status and honor in the coming kingdom. So we did some things on the first resurrection in one of the early studies. I want to go back to it now and look at things I didn't look at before because of the time. So let's read then, uh, and the first thing we'll look at, the two, first of all, there are two resurrections. Two resurrections. And... Uh, we can tell that we read in Revelations 20, verse 4 through to verse 6. I saw thrones and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So this is the key and the most clear passage that there are two resurrections. If there's a first resurrection, then there's a second one. <clears throat> so this is the first resurrection. And uh, <clears throat> it's very clear that the people who are in that first resurrection... Uh, are given responsibility and authority to rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and Christ 
shall reign with him a thousand years. So here's a few key thoughts. Number one, this is a limited resurrection. It's a limited resurrection. Some people are excluded from the first resurrection. So the first resurrection is a limited resurrection. Many people are excluded from that. Now most Christians would accept that. The second thing is the first resurrection is for believers, for followers of Christ. There's no indication anywhere that there would be unsaved in that. The first resurrection is, is actually a resurrection of reward. It's for believers. Now here's the third and the controversial part. Although believers only are in the first resurrection, there's nothing anywhere says that all believers, all believers will be in that resurrection. So it's for believers, but there's nothing says all believers will be in it. In fact, actually, there's a number of scriptures which indicate quite the opposite, that it's limited and uh, because of the promise. Think about this. It says those who participate in the first resurrection will rule and reign with Christ in the millennium. It's very clear. It's, uh, nothing could be clearer. But that promise is given to overcomers in Revelations 2 and 3. So the promise of ruling is part of the first resurrection. The promise given to overcomers is ruling with Christ. So quite clearly, overcomers are the people that have qualified to enter into this first resurrection and participate in ruling and reign with him and establishing his kingdom on earth. Clearly, not all Christians are overcomers. Clearly, many Christians are overcome. They're overcome by sin, they're overcome by worldliness, overcome by temptations and pressures, overcome by offenses, overcome by so many things. And it says uh, these people uh, will rule and reign with Christ. They are the overcomers. So those who are in the first resurrection are blessed and holy. Their, their lives, that means they're set apart for God and blessing sits on their lives. So what about the rest of the dead? The rest of the dead includes people who are dead at this time this happens and those who are living which will then subsequently die. So it says uh, those who participate in the resurrection, they come into resurrection, they're going to live. But those not in the resurrection will rise in the general resurrection at the end of the thousand year reign. So notice what it says there. Uh, it says the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now just stop there for a moment and imagine if you understood your calling was to grow and become like Christ, to serve him on this earth, and then the reward would be putting off this body and putting on a body, uh, a resurrection body, and being able to move unlimited freedom, unlimited uh, access into the realm of heaven, into the realm of earth, being able to move anywhere at any time you wanted to. And that those who fail to enter that would then live their life out and die. Imagine just the impact of this on you, knowing that you were called to this and now you have been excluded from it. So the rest of the dead did not live till the end of the thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, we'll come to the general resurrection in a moment. So clearly the first resurrection is the better one to be in. Two resurrections, that's the one you want to be in. Then we read in Revelation 20, verse 11 through to 15, and it talks about the second resurrection or the general resurrection. And uh, we know that that, uh, from what we've already read, that that must take place at the end of the millennium. So Revelation 20, verse 11 through to 15, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on him from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. 
I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up their dead which were in it. The death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Everyone that comes up in the second resurrection is judged. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So whoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now notice here in that resurrection, there are people small and great. There are people dead. There are also people alive. There are many, many people. And there are both believers and unbelievers in the second resurrection. The only people that won't be in the resurrection will be the overcomers because they come up in the first one. So the second resurrection, believers, that's those who are alive at that time, who will be changed. Those who have died will be raised at that time. Now, whether they're believers or unbelievers, they will all appear before Christ and there will be a judgment. That's called, this one's called the Great White Throne Judgment in comparison to the other one we looked at, which is just the, the Bema, the judgment or reward seat of Christ. So believers and unbelievers are in the second resurrection. We know that because people are found written in the book of life. That means they're a believer. So the second resurrection contains believers and unbelievers. And the first resurrection contains believers, but not all believers, only overcomers. Okay, that brings us then to the next thing I want to look at. Not all Christians make it into the first resurrection. This is the... This is the area of this teaching, which is the one that you do need to know the scriptures because it's an area where people assume everything's all right. I make it no matter what kind of life I live. It's just, it's just the teaching that we can just come to Jesus and then do whatever we want after that. It's the kind of uh, uh, the complacency, the half-heartedness that we see so in so many places it comes about because of a lack of lack of revelation so um, I want to share with you now a very key scripture on this I'm going to show you some other ones as well some are quite clear some are not so clear but they imply it so here it is so not all Christians make the first resurrection Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 through to 15 Philippians 3 8 to 15 and powerful if you look at this Doubtless I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is by law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings become made, being made conformable to his death. And here it is. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I'd already attained, either were perfect, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which I'm apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, reaching forth to the things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now he concludes them. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, think this way, or be thus minded. And if anything be other-minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Wow, very powerful scripture. So Paul has been talking prior to this about everything he did before he was a believer. And he talked about his pedigree, his training, his teaching. He said, all of that is nothing. 
He said, I, I, he said, it was valuable to me then, but now, he said, I consider it all loss compared to the knowing or knowledge of Christ. And he said, I've given up lots of things. I've given up basic my life and my security, and I don't count, consider any of these things important. My goal is to win Christ. Now, we have talked before about running the race, and there's a prize. So here, he, inter- he, he, he lays out just in that brief statement that I may win Christ, meaning that, that intimacy, that deep fellowship, deep relationship with Jesus is something to be won by running our race according to the way God wants to run it. Now he says, if by any means I might attain to the up from resurrection, uh, to, from unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had attained it or were perfect yet, but I follow after because this is what God has called me to. So notice there, the key thing he's saying is two things he points out. One, he points out the, the prize to be won. He says there's a prize to be won. And that prize, he identifies it as the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So the prize he's talking about is a calling. It's fulfilling a calling. And he says it's a very high or elevated calling. It's the calling God puts to every one of us, an invitation. So calling is really an invitation. So he says, um, he said, uh, he talks then about the prize. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, he then talks, I forget the things that are behind, I'm stretching out constantly. In other words, he's saying, my life pursuit is this prize. This is so valuable, I have laid down everything to get this. And then he goes on to say, I'm not even sure I'm gonna get it. Notice he says, uh, that uh, not, not that I have attained it already or even made perfect, but I follow hard that I may obtain or apprehend that which for which Christ has called me. So he's basically saying there is a prize. That prize is the high calling of God in Christ. That prize involves winning deep intimacy with Jesus. And he said, I have not made it. And he's writing as an apostle. He's gone through hardships and difficulties and suffering, but he still has no assurance in his heart that he will qualify for this reward. Now, when we look right there in the middle of the passage, you'll see here that what he's referring to is the resurrection of the dead. I'll read it in Philippians 3.11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, that statement, is the, the one I've read out to you, is from New King James Version. It is not a good translation. It's a poor translation that, dis- that hides what they were saying. So if you go back to the original language of Greek, uh, the, word is, the word for resurrection is the word anastasis. Anastasis means resurrection, and calling back to life again, calling you to stand up again. Stasis, to stand, ana, again, stand up again. So the word resurrection is anastasis. So in the Bible, whenever they use the word resurrection, they use anastasis, the resurrection of Jesus, anastasis. But this word here is different. It's the word ex-anastasis, meaning the out-from resurrection. It's a resurrection that takes me out from everyone else. <coughs> and then he adds to it and doubles up, doubles down on it. Verse, he says, ex-anastasis, ek-necron, from the dead ones. So the language of it is really saying something like this. There is a special, unique resurrection This resurrection is an out-from resurrection which brings you out from all the dead ahead of all the dead. 
And uh, this is the prize that he's looking for, the, to attain into that first resurrection. And so it's, a, it's the out from resurrection from among the dead. It's not a general resurrection. It's a very limited resurrection. He's talking about the first resurrection. So we read about the first one. Now here it is. And he's saying as, a, as an apostle, he's not even sure he qualifies. So what he's saying then is it's a prize that you could disqualify yourself at any point. And you look and you see some ministries and they've done very well for so many years and then totally disqualify themselves. Stronghold in their heart, collapse breaks out and the problem comes and then it's all over. So the resurrection, which is from among the dead, is a privilege you arrive at. It follows the way you live your life. And he implies that the key part of that is that I might know him, that's ongoing intimacy with Jesus, that I might experience the power of his resurrection, and that I might also participate in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to death. What does that mean? He's talking about the, the, the pursuit of Christ. The pursuit of this resurrection means I'll embrace a life of knowing him and surrendering to his will in my life. So to become conformable to his death means that I actually surrender my life to what I want to do to fulfill what God wants to do. That's what it looks like. Jesus uh, humbled himself and became obedient under death. So we have this opportunity to die to ourselves every day all through the day. So it's all to do with the self-life. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, then he said, take up, uh, deny self, take up your cross. So what he's talking about there is being conformed to his sufferings. That means to be shaped in our life through the tough experiences we have so we become like him. So whatever tough experiences we have, disappointments, setbacks, offenses, betrayals, uh, delays, uh, difficulties, traumas, the life is full of those things, he said. But all of those things, God will use them and make them work to shift and change us so we are prepared for what he has. It's all in how you respond to them. So we can, when we see and experience problems, enter into reaction mode to the problems, or by looking at the natural, or we can set our eyes on Jesus himself as the example of enduring suffering. How did he handle these things? And allowing him to change us. It says, uh, he says, uh, we are changed from glory to glory. We, he says, beholding, uh, as we look not at the things natural but the things invisible then God uses them to change us so notice here if by any means I might attain to the resurrection so what is that word if by any means well, you even, anytime you see if that means a condition I may not do it if by any means implies a possibility I don't make it and just to show you that's what it means in Acts twenty-seven twelve, they use the same term and because the harbour was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised we set sail from there also, if by any means we could reach Phoenix, a harbour in Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. And of course, if you read the story in the book of Acts, they never made it. So he's saying, if by any means we might reach. So we put out from the shore, if by any means we might reach Phoenix, but actually they were shipwrecked. So their journey, they did not reach their destination. So when it says, if by any means, it's saying very clearly, there's a possibility you don't make it. So again, is a resurrection going to happen? Yes, for everyone. The first resurrection, select resurrection. 
It's not all inclusive. It's for those who have run their race according to what God wants. And it's very helpful to see that. Now, <clears throat> the next thing I want to look at is just very briefly, this would be something that could be developed uh, in, in a huge amount. And I'm going to introduce something a little bit new in here. And, uh, but then that becomes a whole topic of its own you can go looking at. So, so, so the resurrection take place at the coming of Christ. So we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through to 17. So the timing of all these things, that's another whole study and the sequence of events. I don't want to go there. I just want to stick focused on there is a, two resurrections and one is a resurrection of reward and not everyone gets in and there's reasons why. And here's what they are. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, I would not have your ignorant brethren concerning those who are asleep, in other words, those who have died, so you don't sorrow like others that have got no hope. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even though them that sleep in Jesus, God will bring with them. And this we say to you by the word of God, that we which are alive and are remain to the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep. And here's the verse, verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, it's a shout of victory, with the voice of the archangel, and here it is, with the trump of God. In other words, there's a trumpet blast, the trump, a single trump. And it says, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and thee which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now verse 17, to be caught up together with them, is a term used uh, by many people in the church called the rapture. Now, we don't want to teach on it and go into it right now. But again, like the first resurrection teaching, most of the churches got the story wrong about the rapture as well. And so understanding it and knowing, knowing the basis of what the Bible does teach, you'll be better equipped then to, to talk into these things. I won't go into it today. It's another whole teaching to bring. So notice there, he talks about the trump of God will, shout, will sound, and that's when the resurrection takes place. Now... He's referring, <clears throat> of course, uh, to a trumpet blast from heaven. But in the Bible, you find that many things which are fulfilled in the New Testament are prefigured through the Old Testament. Mm. So what we see happening in the New appears in the Old Testament in a type, a pattern, a shadow, someone or something or some event or some object that prefigures all of this. So in the Old Testament, there was a feast called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, there were three feasts of Israel, and here's what the three feasts are. Some of you may know them all, but they're a teaching, really, to develop on their own. The first uh, feast was the Feast of Passover, and it was held in the first day. It was held in the first month on the 14th day. God reordered their cal calendar, and he said, this will be the beginning of your calendar from now on. And so the Feast of Passover takes place in the first month. And this was fulfilled literally by Jesus Christ. I'll come back to that in a moment. The Feast of Pentecost was the next feast that was held in the third month, 50 days after the first month feast. And this also is uh, characterized by the coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, that, that feast was fulfilled. <coughs> then there was the Feast of Harvest. So, so Passover was the beginning of their year. Pentecost then is the feast of first fruits, and then Tabernacles was the third feast held in the seventh month, and that has not yet been fulfilled. So, so you find through the Bible many references to the Feast of Tabernacles, the uh, Feast of Trumpets was a part of that, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur was a part of that, 
and then the uh, year of Jubilee, the day and, the, and, and so on. All of that <clears throat> was a part of that feast. Now that's a whole teaching of its own to, to look at later. What we need to see is that two of those feasts were fulfilled exactly and to the detail historically. So these feasts have firstly a personal application and then secondly a prophetic application. Personal means there's something about this feast for you to experience and secondly prophetic there's something about it that foretells of events in history the eternal plan of God. So in other words these feasts of Israel and what God put out in those books of the law outline the whole story or the whole history of man one end to the other. In other words as you go through it you find and it leads you to discover firstly Jesus Christ and secondly the total plan of God. Now most churches don't teach anything on this and so people don't understand why these things are important, they don't understand why they celebrate the Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. There's no, there's no context or teaching for it. So we need to have that. Okay then, so let's go and I want to, without going into all the, the, the feasts, let me just give a little bit about each one and then you can see it. So firstly, the Feast of Passover, which you'll find in Exodus chapter 12. And the Feast of Passover, the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. They were in slavery to Egypt and there were 10 plagues and on the last plague, the eve of the last plague, they were all told every family had to take a lamb, a spotless lamb. It was taken on the 14th day of the month and uh, it was slain. It was taken actually on the 10th day. It was investigated for four days to be found spotless. On the, 10th, on the 14th day it was slain. They took the blood, they applied it to the lintels and the doorposts and then that night they stayed in there and ate the Passover feast, the first Passover feast. And that night the destroyer went through and all the firstborn in the land was slain. And uh, immediately as a consequence of that, they were all able to escape Egypt. And they then became Israel, the nation entering and on their way into their land. Now, when you look into the New Testament, and again, we'd need to study more details about this, uh, at the feast of Passover was the feast when Jesus died. So Jesus uh, gave up his life and there was a darkness over the land for three hours and that stopped people offering up the sacrifice until the very moment Jesus died. And as Jesus died, uh, or when he died, then everyone was able to, opera, uh, to offer the natural Passover sacrifice. So the very event, a lamb slain and its blood shed for forgiveness of sins, the very timing of it, the exact day, the exact time, coincided with the natural feast of Passover. In other words, the Passover of the old was fulfilled exactly to the very hour by circumstances God engineered, the very hour. And, that's when the veil of the temple and that's when the veil torn, torn, all these things happened. It's extraordinary. Now, so when you see that, you realize that God pre-planned all of history and was able to organize. He's bigger yeah. than all of events. This is so exciting. And then it tells us now that Jesus, yeah, Jesus was inspected four times by four different people. And just like the lamb was inspected oh. over four days. There's, there's lots of things. You need to look into these feasts. They're just so wonderful to see. Oh my God, you're so big and you're and, and yeah. powerful. And, and it tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So the personal experience for us is that we receive Christ as our Savior. His blood cleanses our sins. We become justified before God. And now we become escaped out of Egypt. We're now born again into the family of God. Okay. 
So then Jesus told the disciples that they should wait and they should wait until they receive power from on high. Now, they had to wait. They had no idea how long to wait, or maybe they did. They waited until the exact day of Pentecost at the exact hour that they would pour water out in the temple. The Holy Ghost fell on them and the Pentecost feast that had been celebrated for years now was literally and actually fulfilled. And so what happened? Jesus is now pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And it's, it's the, uh, there's many aspects of it which are extraordinary. They're very, very like the, uh, like its counterpart in the Old Testament was in, in Exodus 19 where they came to the foot of the mountain and the fire of God fell and they saw the fire of God and God spoke to them and the law of God was given. Now in the New Testament, the fire of God falls. They see the fire of God falling. God speaks and ministers to them. The spirit now is put into their heart and the law of God's written in the heart. So it's, it's just like the parallels are extraordinary. So again, we have the feast of Passover. We can experience personally, we get saved. We have the Feast of Pentecost. We get filled with the Holy Ghost and fire and God begins the transforming work in our life and empowers us for service. So you, what I want you to see in this point is one, it's personal and it leads us to an encounter with God and also it's prophetic. It has a t an accurate time it gets fulfilled. Okay, right now that brings us to the Feast then um, of Tabernacles, which is in the seventh month. So at the beginning of the seventh month, they had the Feast of Tabernacles, which started with a trumpet, the sound of the trumpet. And uh, so the trumpet, the, the, the Feast of Trumpets was uh, on one day. And then there was the, uh, the Day of Atonement, which was fasting, Yom Kippur. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, the, uh, the Jubilee announced. Okay, so now I want to just not go into all of that right now, but clearly here's, here's two things. The first thing is, this must also be a personal experience with God. The second is, it must have a timing, which is exactly the right timing. So it's almost certain that the Feast of Tabernacles will be literally fulfilled when they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Okay, so what does it say about this? And uh, here's, I'll just share a few things in this, just so you can see about the resurrection. Numbers 10 verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets for yourself. You'll make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation, directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, okay, two trumpets, when they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle and meeting. However, if they blow only one, then only the leaders, the heads and divisions of divisions of Israel shall gather to you. And then it, there's other things about it. When they sound the advance, then the camps will all move. So whenever there was a movement, they sounded the trumpet. Whenever they wanted to have a gathering, gather all the people, sound, sound both trumpets, gather only the leaders, the rulers, they gather one trumpet. Okay, and then if they had war, they would sound the trumpet to remind God to step in and help them in their wars. And if they had a day of gladness or feast, the feasts of Israel, they would also sound the trumpets at the feasts. So we get to this, we get the Feast of Trumpets. Now notice here, two things in here, that um, when one trumpet is sounded, the leaders gather. When two trumpets are sounded, then everyone gathers. <coughs> so we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, when the trump of God sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So, so we see here in the Old Testament, when he sounded one trumpet, all those who were leaders would gather. 
So when the trump sounds, you notice the overcomers will arise and they are the ones who will rule with Christ. So you see a strong picture prophetically in the Old Testament, two different situations, one trumpet, the leaders or rulers arise, the other trumpet, the whole congregation arises. So when the Lord returns, one trump will sound and then the overcomers will arise into their resurrection bodies. It won't be till the end of a thousand years that the two trumpets will sound and all the rest are gathered. Amazing. Mm. Imagine that. Mm. So it makes the, the study of the Old Testament so wonderful because hidden everywhere through it is Christ and the prophetic plan of God. And that's why when Jesus met the disciples in Luke 24, he shared with them all things in the prophets and the, in the law and the prophets that spoke of him. That must have been the most amazing message to ever hear is for him to go through the books of the Bible. This is about me. That's about me. Oh, yeah. And that Passover lamb, that's me. And then this, that's me. That's me. And oh, yes. And, and, and this is me over here. Ruth and Boaz. Oh, that's me. And that's the bride. That's the church. He's gone right through the whole Bible and shown them exactly where he appears in it and how all of these stories have been integrated by God to point to the end times and God's plan unfolding. So uh, absolutely amazing. <laughs> That's what makes the Bible so, it's just inexhaustible. Mm. And once you get the understanding of that, you, you're really delighted. <coughs> so, all right then, so now I want to look then at then, well, what, what is the basis for selection? How, what are the things of selecting? And uh, I've got quite a few stuff. There's, obviously, you can't easily deal with that because as we shared before, there are quite a number of factors. But I want to go through a few things that are clear factors in this. And how it's, and I want to look also at how we are responsible <coughs> to actually prepare ourselves. We have to do something to qualify. So the first thing I want to look at is just some of the things that would uh, be would be a part of it. We've already did it when we looked at the, the the judgment seat of Christ, but let's go through it and do it through this different lens. Okay. So uh, there's a story I didn't teach last week because I want to bring it in here now. It's worked out quite well. So what's the first selection? The first selection is on faithful service. Faithful service. And you see the parable of the wise servant. And uh, it's found in Matthew 24, verse 45 to 51. Uh, and uh, let me read it for you. The, who then is the wise, a faithful and wise servant who the master has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, finds so doing. I tell you, he'll make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming, beats his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he's not looking for him and an hour he's not aware of, will cut him in two or cut him off and appoint his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the context of this is Matthew 24, 25. Jesus talking about the second coming. So he's now saying regarding the second coming that in his house there'll be wise servants and there'll be foolish servants. We saw wise virgins and foolish virgins, now wise servants and foolish servants. And notice there, the wise and faithful servant, uh, there's a, a number of things about him. It says, uh, who, who is that wise and faithful servant? Uh, he find, It's that servant whom his master, when he comes, find doing. And uh, this is what he, he says then, if we read it through. First of all, he's a servant. He's a servant of the Lord. He's a believer. Secondly, he's sensitive to what's happening. He, does, he gives meat in due season meaning meat is the word of God, meat means uh, something substantial, and uh, what it means is that in due season at the appropriate time. So essentially, he is fulfilling his assignment 
and he's sensitive to the hour that it's in, what's required. Probably that's the best way to put it. It makes it more broad, otherwise you might think of it only in terms of people preaching. So we say it like this, the wise servant has discovered his assignment and he's fulfilling his assignment with the heart of a servant and with loving sacrifice. And I put those two things in because when we look at the other servant, you'll see some issues which are quite distinctive with him. So what is the wise servant's reward? He'll make him ruler over all over his household and over all his goods. So that servant is an overcomer. So what does it tell us in there about being an overcomer? It tells us that I must fulfill my assignment and I must do it in the right spirit. And I must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what's his reward? Ruler over the household. Because he's ruler over the household, we know he's of the first resurrection. These are the ones that will rule with Christ for a thousand years. He's over the household as well as all the goods. So he's in a place of substantial authority. And he's learnt and qualified for it because he's developed being a servant. And uh, the foolish and unfaithful servant, he's also a servant. He's a believer. But his heart is hardened because of neglect of intimacy. He's unconcerned about the master coming back. Let's read what the the unfaithful servant did. It says, he says in his heart, my master delays his coming. Or putting it like this, Oh, Jesus, I don't know when he's going to return. Probably not in my lifetime. Don't worry about it. Let's just enjoy life. So it's a casual attitude of no respect for what the coming of the Lord will involve. And uh, so he's just living casually. He's living at ease virtually. He has a neglect of love for his master. If he loved his master, he would feel very concerned to be diligent in serving his master's cause and serving his master's people. It says, secondly, it tells us about him, was that this attitude showed up towards the servants. He began to beat the fellow servants. So to beat the fellow servants means to mistreat fellow Christians, to speak ill of them, to treat them badly. So every time you see someone mistreating another Christian, they are increasingly disqualifying themselves from the first resurrection. So don't get caught in the injustice of it. Keep focused on what the consequences are and how we should keep keep a good heart. So his his attitudes towards the fellow servants are destructive (coughs) and his lifestyle is entangled with ungodly people. He's eating and drinking with the drunkard. In other words, there's no commitment to live a godly life, to be sensitive to the Lord, build intimacy. So he's totally unaware of the spiritual timing. And when the Lord returns, he's caught out. And it says he'll be cut in two. That means um, painful discipline. Weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to grief and then anger at his loss. In other words, he's been in the house. He was called to this great thing. It happens and he's disqualified. And not only that, lost the opportunities he had. So the result is weeping, deep sorrow that forever I missed my opportunity. I chose the wrong things. And uh, gnashing of teeth speaks of anger, deep frustration and anger that I can't do anything about this. Okay, so we see there that Jesus reveals what it means to be an overcomer who inherits the first resurrection. Faithfully fulfill your assignment with loving service to people, especially the people of God. Second thing, uh, uh, the second thing is another parable. It's the parable of the banquet. I won't go through all of it. I'll go through just the relevant bit. Here's the second uh, um, qualification, I think, is loving people with no agenda learning to love with no hidden agenda faithful service loving service loving people with no agenda look at this 
in Luke 14 and verse 12, and it's talking about the banquet. And, uh, and there's a whole group of um, Pharisees and they've gathered all their friends together. They've got a big banquet going on and Jesus observed how they're all fighting for position and, and being the top <coughs> of the dot, all that kind of stuff. It was a highly competitive group. And he said, then he also said to him who invited him, so his, his discussion is to the host, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, rich neighbours, because they'll invite you back and you'll be repaid. So what he's saying is, don't just give out where you hope to get something back. Sound a familiar scripture? We saw that last week. He said, but rather when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So what he's saying is that our generosity should have no hidden strings attached. That when we give, our giving is with no expectation of return from the person who we blessed. That we should not just give where we hope to get something back. It's this whole thing that I do something so I can get something back mentality. He, he, he says, when you do it, this is what you should do. Give to the people that cannot repay you. And he says, you will be blessed. And he says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, what resurrection is he referring to? Well, he's talking about payment. He's talking about reward. He can't be talking about the second resurrection. He's talking about the first resurrection. So he's talking to the host of the banquet and confronting, in spite of the big banquet and the apparent generosity of the man, it's all riddled with wrong motivations of getting, of, of you know, cultivating mates, paying them back. You know, you give me a meal, I give you a meal back, or I give you a meal, you owe me one back, all that kind of thing. So, so, um, so basically, the, it was all given to those who could pay him back. It all had a selfish agenda. So Jesus then reveals what it's to be an overcomer. And here it's the verse resurrection. We must show the quality of unconditional love that gives no thought to receiving a return. Simple. We touched that one last week too. And in the same scripture, Luke 6, verse 32, 35. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners can do that. But if you love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, your reward shall be great and you shall be children of the highest for he's kind to the unthankful and faithful. Notice there that great reward is given to servants who show unconditional love. Your reward will be great and you shall be children. That's a bad translation. The word is huios, meaning mature sons. So maturity, <coughs> overcomers, have developed a generosity and a loving heart to people that has no hidden agendas. How about that? And he says, that's what sonship looks like. Because he said, when you do that, you're acting like the father does. Okay, so there's the second one. Third one, uh, a daily walk by faith. A daily walk with God by faith. In other words, this is not just one thing we do now and then. This is our lifestyle. And the example there is the example of uh, Enoch. And uh, here it is. Uh, in Genesis 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and then suddenly vanished because God took him. In other words, he was translated, never saw death. And that makes him a prophetic picture of those in the end time who are alive and never see death. What a great thing to never see death. Never grow old, get cancer, fade away, weakening and whatever. But rather, we actually just suddenly are changed. So he's a, he's a prophetic picture of someone who uh, was uh, resurrected. And uh, the reason they give there is he walked with God. And we read the same thing spoken in the book of Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. Um, By faith Enoch was taken away, so he never saw death and was not found because God had taken him. 
For before he was taken, he had this testimony, he pleased God. Isn't that fantastic? Mm. He walked with God, and this is what this is the testimony that they gave. He brought pleasure to God. And in verse 6 it says, For without faith it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you put the scriptures together, you see then that Enoch was a man of faith, is a man who trusted God, walk with God means he had a relationship with God, and all the things that he did brought pleasure to God. How about that? And so that's an example for us. Now, uh, there's another scripture about Enoch. Here's another one. There's actually a whole book of Enoch. Enoch was a very significant man in the Old Testament. And Enoch's book called The Book of Enoch, which is in my, uh, you can download it. But The Book of Enoch tells all about Genesis 6-5, about the watchers and the defilement <coughs> of demonic spirits with mankind, which led up to Noah and the flood. Very, very interesting. Okay, we're going to do that though. Uh, but it was quoted from, here it is, in Jude 1, verse 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied about these ungodly men, saying, Behold, the Lord come with that ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. And notice there, he was, he was prophetic. He prophesied. And he obviously warned his generation. So we see then for Enoch, he had a walk with God, daily walk with God. That means he had relationship and intimacy. He had faith, he trusted God, he lived a life that brought pleasure to God, and he was one who warned people about a coming judgment which took place after he had vanished on the, on the, at the time of Noah. So he walked with God, had a life testimony that pleased God, he had faith, and he was looking for the coming of the Lord. So Jesus reveals what it's like to be an overcomer who inherits the first resurrection. We're called to walk with God by faith and live a godly life that pleases him. Okay, and here's a, a fourth, um, I'll give you two more. Uh, a fourth one is focus on eternal rewards and a life of faith. I think that it's important if we want to qualify as an overcomer that we think in terms of eternity instead of in terms of just temporary things. And so I'll just share with you scripture then. And the, this one here is about the Old Testament saints who please God. So we saw Enoch please God. Now it tells us in, uh, in Hebrews 11 again, uh, about the Old Testament saints. It says this in verse 13 through to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, embraced them or welcomed them into their arms, confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And those who say that kind of thing clear, declare plainly they're seeking another country. And if truly they'd call to mind that country from which they come out, they'd have had opportunity to go back. But they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. So he's talking about some of the listed men of faith. And it says that the promises that God had for them were never received then. They're all to be fulfilled in the end time. But they were persuaded that God was faithful and they committed their life to serving him and honoring him. And uh, it says they desire a better country and God's not ashamed uh, to call them his God. So notice what it says. Number one, they desired a heavenly country. In other words, they had a goal of eternal reward. Number two, they looked for and they sought it. They sought God and they sought to please him. Number three, they, they saw what God promised and, and believed and embraced them. And four, they lived a life that honored God in spite of hardships. And God honored them. 
because he's not ashamed of them because and so he says he's prepared for them a heavenly city speaking of the resurrection and it goes on in verse 35 it says women received their dead raised to life again others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection there it is again obtain a better resurrection so what empowered these old testament saints to do what they did they had a vision of a better resurrection everyone knew that there was going to be a resurrection a better resurrection that word better means stronger more noble more powerful having dominion and power so they endured even being sawn in two they endured being put to death they endured all kinds of things and they also overcame because they had a vision that god was using them and they were prophesying of something to come and they served god in their generation so jesus then also reveals through this what it is to be an overcomer inherits the first resurrection focus on eternal rewards walk with god and live a life that pleases him and persevere through difficulties and persecutions and i'll give you one more and um here it is it's um it's a, it's an exhortation by peter and it's growth in godly character growth in godly character i was just sharing this just uh, on a message today so peter exhorts believers in 2 peter 1 verse 5 through to verse um say 12 uh, for this very reason give all diligence add to your faith virtue virtue knowledge add to knowledge self-control self-control perseverance <laughs> to perseverance godliness godliness brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness love if these things are yours and abound you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you lack these things, you're short-sighted even to blindness. You've forgotten you've been cleansed from your old sins. Therefore, be diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never stumble, and an abundant entrance will be supplied to you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, even though you know and established in this current truth or present truth. So the context of this is very clear. It's about the resurrection and the coming of the Lord. In verse 16, he said he talks about we saw the coming of the Lord. So all his discussion here is in the context of the second coming of Jesus and the first resurrection. And he's saying, now you've been saved, add to your faith. And all the things he says to add are all character qualities. He says, make sure you're diligent. Mm diligent to it add to your faith virtue that means good characteristics to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance godliness kindness brotherly love and he says here's a guarantee that if you develop those qualities in your life then the result of that is you won't stumble you will be fruitful and you'll have an abundant entrance to the kingdom instead of being excluded from it so i think it's absolutely amazing our and, and it tells us very clearly if he's urging them, be diligent to make your calling and election sure, clearly the implication is you're not sure unless you do these things. So our election or selection for the high calling of God or first resurrection is not sure, not sure for any one of us here at this table. Our lifestyle and diligence is the thing that will qualify us for that first resurrection. Notice he mentions diligence twice. It means hasten, hurry exert yourself it means if you look it up in miriam webster dictionary to be steady put an energetic effort persevere so you understand it requires 
don't be a, don't be a pushover if there's difficulties you you keep going you remain diligent and you assert yourself to grow and the promise is an abundant or wealthy abounding in resources entrance to the kingdom which is in contrast to being saved but having no reward at all so peter then tells us what it is to be a, a an overcomer who inherits the first resurrection diligent pursuit of growth in your character in christ okay then so how are we doing a little bit more so Jesus taught that it's important to qualify. It's important to be considered or counted or assessed to be worthy of the calling. Because the calling to work with him, be intimate with him, and share with him in governing and bringing order creation is such a big calling, a high calling, you need to be worthy of that calling. And so um, I'll share with you some scriptures on that. Here's the first one. Uh, which was a question on the resurrection, and they're asking him about who, what happens in marriage. And Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 34 to 36, uh, he said, uh, Jesus answered them and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore. They're in the same rank as the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now notice, he says that they are counted worthy to attain that age and, and counted worthy to attain the resurrection. So the Bible is very clear. Everyone will rise from the dead. So he's talking here about the first resurrection and being counted worthy to attain to it. Now here's the thing. If Jesus teaches you need to be accounted worthy, he's teaching there's a possibility of not being in it and he's laying a foundation First resurrection is not automatic. We need to live a life that God looks at it and said, I consider it worthy of being put into this kingdom, into this realm. <coughs> and that life will differ for everyone, of course. He said they'd be counted worthy to attain that age. That age is not referring to eternity. It's referring to a number of ages beginning with the millennium. And the general resurrection is expected, but he's talking about the limited resurrection. To get to it, you have to consider yourself worthy. So this warning of being considered worthy, he repeats. It's repeated in many places, but here's one. Uh, Jesus warns about being counted worthy. Here it is in, in Luke 21, verse 34 to 36. Take heed to yourselves. In other words, look out, take care, watch, be watchful, lest your hearts be burdened with um, carousing and drunkenness and cares of life. And the day suddenly catches you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always you may be counted worthy to escape all those things and stand before the Son of Man. So again, there it is again. He's teaching that at the coming of the Lord, there's a time of upheaval, but you should watch and pray so you'll be considered or counted worthy to escape all of that hassle. And the escape for us will be getting a resurrection body. The escape is coming through access to the throne of God. Nothing can touch us. Paul said the same thing. Paul made the same warning. Ephesians 4.1, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling. He says it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 and 12. You know we exhorted you, verse 12, you would walk worthy of the God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So notice again, the calling into the kingdom and glory of God is connected with being worthy. And here's another one. 
uh, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. Uh, And may God give you, you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. So he's talking about the end time, the coming of the Lord. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he comes in that, now here it is, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. So in other words, the glory of God is going to come forth from within us. And Jesus himself would be admired in those who believe. So I can't go into lots of those, lots around this, but when Jesus manifests himself, our body will be changed and he himself will be visible to people. They will see and know this is Jesus. And he says, and we pray that God would count you worthy of this calling and you'd fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Notice again, He's saying this is a very big deal. It's a very big calling. It's so stunning that you need to walk worthy of that. See? So we, we find examples. I, I won't go through these two other examples, but in the Old Testament, in Zechariah uh, chapter 3, uh, Joshua high priest, uh, he appears before the Lord. And what happens is they put him on clean clothing, which is a gift to him. And then God says to him this, if you walk in my ways and keep my commands or keep my mandate or assignment, you will judge my house and have charge in my courts and I'll give you places to walk among these people in the angelic realm. So there it is again, an Old Testament picture of coming into the first resurrection, but it requires faithfulness to the charge that God has given us. And that varies. Uh, some aspects are the same for all of us and some are not. In, also in the Old Testament, the sons of Zadok and Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 15 to 19, it says, They kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me. They will come near to me to minister to me. So he says, In the days when there was a, um, backsliding in the nation, the priesthood became corrupt. The priesthood uh, fell away from serving God. We are the priesthood called to worship God, offer up sacrifices of prayer, worship, and also of service to God and service to people. We are that priesthood now. And he said, when pressure came on, when there was decline in the nation, some become unfaithful in their priestly duties. These people were faithful, so now I'm going to reward them. They will now come into resurrection bodies. And it says they come into his presence and they have certain garments on. They leave his presence to be with others. They've got different garments. It's a prophetic picture of resurrection. You need to read these and mark these in your Bible. So, And I'll finish with this then, one last point. <coughs> when will we know that we've been counted worthy? <laughs> when will we know? Tell me now. No, you've got too much of your life left. So when will we be counted worthy? And, and I've been wrestling with this question for um, probably the last couple of weeks we've been talking about it, haven't we? Trying to work it out. And... Uh, yeah, and, and now I see it. It's really, here's a good, I haven't even shared this one. This is really good. You like this. So, here, so look at the example of Paul. Okay, the example of Paul. Now remember when we read in Philippians 3, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, for I have not that I've already attained, already perfected, I press on to, that I might lay hold of it all. Can, can you see that? And all those scriptures, we saw that scripture. And um, you, you remember, does that sound like someone who's confident he's going to be in? Eh? The well, the, the, the wording's in the scripture. If we just read that scripture, does that sound like someone confident he's going to make it? No. Okay, now now read just before his death, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now, 
finally, mm. there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There is. What does that yeah. sound? Confident. Does it sound confident? Yeah. So notice on the way, that's 2 Timothy, 4, 2 Timothy 4 verse 7 and 8. So notice earlier in his life, he's not sure. He's forgetting all things that are behind. He's pressing on. And then now he's got the end of his life. I fought the good fight. I finished the faith. I uh, finished the race. I kept the faith. Finally, there's laid out for me the crown. Mm. So he's saying, that's why I don't worry about dying now. I know it's there. I've got it. How did he know? God told him. So so God can tell us before we finish our race that we're finished well. Mm. So So he knew before he died. And that Do you would think give everybody does. No, everybody that's no, I don't think everyone knows. No, it's a revelation, isn't it? So somebody that's connected, vitally connected to Jesus, they may know in their relationship with Jesus. Then they've nothing to worry about. Die. Do you think they know? I think, well, or if they, they have a sense. well, I think they'd have a sense. Basically, they have a sense of great peace, of course, in dying that there's no fear of death because he's there. But the issue of the reward, I don't know that we either he reveals it or we don't know. Or that means. Oh, you didn't get it. I think that if you, <laughs> you just know, it may just mean you don't know. All we know is for Paul that God told him before he died. However, others found out after they died. Here's this next one. <laughs> the next one. Some found out after they died. So I think afterwards, you know, so, he, so at some point in Paul's life, he was judged and found to qualify and given the assurance he qualified. Okay. He, but there are others who found it out afterwards. And in Revelation 6, verse 9 through to 11, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O God, O Lord, holy and true, till you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, so you see, these are people who have died, and specifically these are people who are martyred for their faith, and they're saying, God, when are you going to do something about it? That's what their prayer is. And then it says, Then a white robe was given to each of them. And the white robe, we understand, is uh, the righteousness. It's symbolic always uh, of the overcomer. In Revelations um, chapter Mm. 3, those who overcome will be given a white robe. So the white robe given to them is indication that they have qualified. They're an overcomer who's qualified for the first resurrection and reward. So so either we find (laughs) out before death or we find out after death or when the Lord comes, we're either resurrected or we're not. We're left behind in that sense. So how about that? So it's either before death, after death, or at his coming. We will know one way or the other. And not only will we know, everyone will know. (laughs) And you can understand then the distress uh, of finding that you're living and there's turmoil in the world. The world's in upheaval. There's been problems such as we've never seen before. And in the midst of it all, suddenly someone you know has put on a resurrection body. And at that point, you know you missed. And that they will never get older. They will always look around about 30-ish. They will always look magnificent. They'll be able to change their form. They'll be able to come in and out of rooms and places. They'll be able to travel around wherever they want to go. They'll move in and out of the heavenly realm. And they'll be on assignment from the Lord to reveal what God is like. And you can understand that with that happening, that that releases the latter rain into the earth. It releases the outpouring of the Spirit to bring about transformation of life. That's when we see multitudes and multitudes coming to Christ because this is so real, so powerful. TVs will show it. It'll be like the astonishment of the world to see people who've overcome death and it can never happen to them. 
who can who can possibly argue with this there is no argument they can't be killed they can't nothing can be done and so there are there are so there are pictures spread through the bible of god's eternal purpose but you've got to look for it to see it and even the work that they will do is spread through the bible in different stories so you've got to look for it with not just you look for it this is the story this is what happened and what it meant in that time Here's how it works for me and what and how it applies to me or applies to firstly, this is how it re, and this is how it reveals Jesus and how it speaks prophetically. So there's different layers. You look at the story, what happened at the time and how it impacted the people and how they saw it. Two, what it prophetically reveals about Jesus. Three, how it can apply to my life. And sometimes four, is this got any prophetic implications? And uh, of course, when you see this, it just brings a tremendous joy. You cannot stop studying the Word. You want to reread the Word. You want to find out the stories. You want to know all the things that go on because now you first you've got to get the knowledge of the Word. Then you've got to look how the things interconnect. And if you and now what you're seeing is like a massive jigsaw puzzle with pieces everywhere, and some of them are hidden. But at, as we get nearer the end time, God will reveal more of the pieces, and suddenly, oh my God, how did I miss that? That's so evident. And uh, it's all about the unfolding of His plan that's been there since eternity, that he will have a kingdom of overcoming sons who will extend his kingdom through all the earth. So I encourage you to think about that and just think, well, how did the Holy Spirit speak to me? What sorts of response do I need to make? And in the any areas of my life where I'm not qualifying and I know it and I need to make an adjustment. So there it is, the, the ministry on the resurrection.